Welcome to the Calvary Life Podcast. This is a podcast for the members of Calvary Baptist Church and also for anybody else that's interested in local church life. Uh, I'm Charles Uptane. I'm Paul Thompson. And today uh, it is it's Halloween for us, and so we want to start off with uh, asking our pastor what his favorite Halloween candy is because we know that um, he likes to give us his opinion, as he told us in sermon a few weeks ago. So what is your favorite candy, Paul? I'm reluctant to say because... Um, one, I'm trying to eat better right now. I've got a wedding coming up and in the new year, um, and I'm trying not to binge and stuff on candy. And also, I don't want to manipulate folks into you know feeling obligated to bring me candy. But if you do, then I like Butterfingers and Reese's. Yeah, small candies. I like um, I like bit of honey and and Mary Jane's. Wow. That's uh that's good stuff. I like you know I like just the sugary stuff too. I like uh, Twizzlers are good for me, and uh, my wife doesn't like me to eat Twizzlers. She says the smell is awful, but uh, that's my candy go to when I'm going to a movie because I you like talking about red Twizzlers. Yeah, man, they smell. They have they, a smell to them. She says they do, and uh, she won't even sit next to me in a movie if um if I'm eating red Twizzlers. Yeah, I so, don't like them. It's kind of like wax to me. Yeah, I, I like know. it. I just I like go straight for the taste. chocolate and peanut butter stuff. Heath bars are good too. Yeah. You know, you can keep the candy corn and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. What about the marshmallow stuff? Do you like the marshmallow like any, stuff? No. No, no marshmallows. No, no. Chocolate-covered marshmallows. Russell Stover chocolate-covered marshmallows are good. Yeah. Save those for Christmas. Those Santa Claus ones, those are really good. Yeah. Well, it is uh, not only Halloween. It's also Reformation. Happy Reformation Day. So, uh, Paul, maybe a, a thought to that. You've mentioned it from the sermon, I know, but uh, just thinking about, once again, our history of uh, being a part of the— Reformation, the folks of the Protestant Reformation. It's just a good reminder today of one that we need to always be reforming ourselves in the sense that we're always turning back to to the scriptures. You know, I think that that guiding principle, the Reformation of sola scriptura, scripture alone, as our as our guiding principle, as our as our immovable truth. Uh, scripture is our ultimate authority. That's a that's just an ongoing challenge. The 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 principle of reformation is that we are forever looking to God's word and saying, God, are we faithful to you? And are, and are we true to the gospel? It seems to be getting so distorted. You know, we use the word gospel so much today; it's, it's become a very overused church word. And what are we really declaring? You know, we we sometimes confuse the gospel with a plan of salvation or an ABCs. The gospel is a declaration of the saving work of Christ. The only means by which any of us are saved is through His grace, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, of course, that final, ultimate statement of, of Reformation, sola of Reformation, is that it's for God's glory alone. So just that those good reminders. I, I think every year, at least, it's a good recentering for us. Are we, are we clear on the gospel of grace? Are we clear on teaching justification? By faith alone, the only way any person is made right with God, and all people will have to be, they're all going to stand before the Father in judgment, is through His grace, and that's through faith, faith in the saving work of Christ who alone justifies us. So it's just a good reminder, and I, and I would challenge our folks to do this. This is a good reminder to do some good reading, too. Yeah. Not just the pop stuff, not just the self-help stuff, not just the easy reads, but the stuff that requires a little bit of a deep dig. We put some good history and some good uh, theology in our resource center um, 
this past month over the month of October. And so I'd encourage you to visit it. If you haven't been there in a while, come Wednesday night, check it out, or Sunday when you're here. There's a good children's resource. I read from that a little bit last time we were on the podcast, and there's some other good good resources just to read a good time to revisit the the core of our faith. And, and I'll say this too, Charles. You asked a simple question. I'm giving you a long answer. But if we don't revisit these things, we're in danger of losing them. And so much of the modern church, man, somebody sent me something the other day from Church by the Glades down in South Florida. I mean, just absolute nonsense uh, service with so many Halloween themes. And I thought, I wonder if there's a single person sitting in that audience. I, I wouldn't call them a congregation because this is a show. It's a freak show. And I wonder if a single person in that audience even understands what are the foundations of our faith that reformers died for, yeah. gave their life for. Now, obviously, Christianity didn't begin at the Reformation, but it certainly was reclaimed at the Reformation of what the gospel really is, and do we even understand these roots, and do we believe them? So anyway, this is just a great opportunity to recalibrate, and I hope our folks will do that. Yeah, m- most most definitely. Uh, for today, a, a conversation I wanted to have today, Paul, really, I guess it comes out of our discussion the last few weeks in systematic theology dealing with God's providence. And one one part of that that really has um, been something that's been on my mind lately is how prayer really fits into that. And and I know you taught on concurrence, and maybe you can explain concurrence in a in a in a in a little bit of a of a idea towards prayer with that. But I just thought it'd be good for us to just talk about uh, the life of the church when it comes to our corporate prayer, but also our individual prayer time and how we how we when we understand who God is and we see His sovereignty, His providence how that should lead us to pray. Um, I think sometimes that, um, you know, our, our human thinking may say that if we really believe in God as being sovereign, God as being eternal, God as having this providential uh, position over the world, that really why does our prayers matter? But I think that's the opposite of what Scripture teaches us in that. So just, just talk maybe a minute or some about that, about prayer and, and providence and how those fit together. Let me start with kind of a wide-angle lens and then zoom in. At the widest-angle lens, the affirmations that we've been repeating in systematic theology, for instance, but that we need to understand as Christians, the foundational beliefs about God need to at least be these. As for God, His way is perfect. So everything about God is good. Mm-hmm. Um, the God of the universe, He will do what's right. You know, Bible's emphatically clear about this again and again and again. He's unquestionably good. doesn't mean we always understand why God does what He does, or what God is doing as he does what he does, or how this is good, it supersedes our understanding. But we have to affirm the absolute immutable goodness of God, and in concert with that is the absolute power of God, the omnipotence of God. So when we think of God as our sovereign, we think of God as the one who has the right to do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. He's the king of everything. He's the king of the universe, but also the God who has the not just the authority as king, but the power, the ability to enact whatever he wants. And so when you couple those things, God's power and God's authority, his right and his might, then you understand that through the lens of Scripture, that the God who exerts power and authority is absolutely good, perfect in all his ways, and loving towards us, merciful and kind. That's where we come with the idea of providence. So how does God demonstrate his goodness and his might? Is through providence, how he works in this world. And the words you use, which I think is really critical for Christians to wrestle with, begin to understand, and dig more deeply into it as you start to comprehend the the essence of it, is concurrence. So concurrence is how we begin to reconcile 
our our sense of responsibility, freedom, if you will, mm-hmm. versus God's sovereignty. How does my human responsibility, my human autonomy, my human free will work in concert with God's sovereignty? And in concurrence, we recognize these two these two elements are always happening simultaneously. God's doing what God does. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't, often we don't. We don't know how God's working exactly, but we believe that God is always working, that God is active in this world. Um, that term in providence is God's government and things. And, and backing up a little bit, Charles, you know, we're not, we're not deists. You know, a number of our early church—I mean, sorry, a number of our early fathers— um, National fathers, National fathers yeah, founding fathers, were deists. They believed in God, but they believed in a version of God that sets things into motion— whether that's creation itself through processes of time and change like evolution or whatever, but God who sets things into motion but then largely um, removes himself. Yeah. And so while he may oversee, he doesn't intercede. He's not involved. We're not deists. We're theists. You know, We believe that the God who made is also the God who's involved in, the God who orchestrates, the God who's carrying out everything according to his purpose, that God exercises his government in the world. But God is doing that at the same time while you and I are living, and somehow those two things have to coincide, and mm-hmm. that's concurrence. So concurrently, God's doing what he's doing, and I'm doing what I'm doing, but God's power is greater. I'm always the secondary cause, even if I only see my own causes. You know, so, for instance, you know, Charles, you just, you just gave your daughter away at a wedding this weekend. It would be easy for someone to only see that from a human perspective. Well, why did Riley and Braden get married? Well, they chose to. Yeah. You know, they met each other, and they liked each other. They spent time together, and they, they finally just decided, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to do this big thing called marriage. And so who's primary in that? Well, they are. I mean, it's not, it wasn't you and your family or Braden and his family because it wasn't an arranged marriage. They, right. they chose each other. Right. You blessed and affirmed it. So we would look at that, but we would look at that as, well, free will, autonomy, human choice. But when we think of concurrence in God's providence, we would say that's actually a secondary cause. In ways seen and unseen, God's hand, figuratively speaking, the providential hand of God was at work bringing about circumstances and events in their lives. And so how does that happen? Well, what sort of prayers were you and and, and Melody praying years ago? Right. What sort of prayers were the Ginthers praying years ago? What sort of prayers is any Christian parent or family praying? And how does God answer those? Um, you know, I was reading an interesting chapter in this book called uh, Chance and the Sovereignty of God by Vern Poitras. And there's a chapter on here on about unpredictable events. So like, okay, so what about random things? Things just seem to seem to be totally random for us, like how this happens. And he makes a point that even in these random things, and we can look at biblical examples— God was at work in what appears to simply be random to us, and maybe maybe our view of God is actually too small because we don't recognize how in a thousand different things or a hundred thousand different occurrences or events or choices, God is at work. So you look at a young couple walking down the aisle on Saturday, and we would say, so many of these different pieces of a family moving here or changing churches here or meeting through a friendship circle here or living in this town, whatever it may be, in a thousand different ways, seen and unseen, God is bringing things about as partially as a result of people praying for those things. 
Yeah. So God's sovereignty is not disconnected from our praying. It's actually contingent on praying to a degree. In other words, God who's orchestrating how things are going to be and working towards those good ends has determined in his sovereign way how things are going to be that way, how you raise your children, what you teach them about life and marriage, what you're praying for, all those things. So God is working through all those things which you orchestrate. So I think it was, as, as Piper says, if we use the analogy of building a house, God is sovereign over not just the house coming into existence, but the hammer hitting the nail. Mm-hmm. And every part of the process leading up to it, God's involved in that. If the hammer never strikes the nail, the house is not built. If the prayers aren't prayed, then we know you have not because you ask not, the Bible says. But yet it is God's sovereign plan to accomplish His purposes through, partially through, the prayers of His people. Yeah, uh, one thought to that is, I was just thinking as you were speaking about our the about Scripture, about the Word, how um, we see, you know, we may read a, a story in Scripture, we may read a, a family line in Scripture, and we read it all at once, and we kind of throw it all together, it happened at one time, but that may have been hundreds of years of things happening, waiting on God's plan to come to fruition. You know, we think of the prophets and how they prophesied about Jesus coming, and there was hundreds of years, uh, you know, before those things actually happened. Think about the time span it takes of God uh, involved in different things, how things are, uh, the people that are the emperors or the, um, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar come into power and all those things that happened that God was still in charge of. But I think we kind of condense it sometimes in our Bible study to see that, oh yeah, God did this to A, B, to C. But really when you look and you kind of expand the history of, of God's people and then look at the New Testament, I think you can get a better view of how God is involved in all those little things a, bit, a little bit better. I think that's a sort of uh, view, perspective, that we won't get until eternity, really, to be able to see exactly how big God was in all of those things. So instead of having this view of God's sovereignty as we're doing what we want most of the time until we really mess things up and then maybe God steps in to remedy what we just wrecked, or God steps in to do something miraculous, like, now, okay, now I'm going to give you a, a spouse, or now I'm going to give you a job, or now I'm going to answer this prayer— no, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's, it's God orchestrating all these things, and somehow, in a way that's really hard for us to understand, it, he's putting things together in a way that will accomplish his purposes, even though in so many small ways we, we fail along the way. We do drop the ball. We do make wrong choices, wrong decisions, but yet he's still carrying it through. And so that's, that's really where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the fact that it may look... Um, it may look out of control. It may look random, the events of our lives. There may not seem to be connecting points, rhymes, or reasons uh, why things happen, but to know that God is actually working. He's not released his hand from us or from the, from the circumstances that's, that affect us. And so that really is, is the source of our hope, not just one day, but today. Yeah, so, so on one side of that scale, I guess you have, or one side of the spectrum is determinism which is, you know, basically, I, it doesn't matter what I do, God's going to have things happen exactly how he wants, and it's just going to happen, because it's God. And that's one end, and that's what we're saying, no, there's some there's some concurrence there with personal responsibility. The other side of that, I think we have to think about, is also maybe the, the name it, claim it kind of idea, that, that my prayers, um, whatever I pray, if I really believe it, if I really have enough faith, that I can then cause things to happen. Um, speak about that and how that takes that idea and warps it as well. In our praying, the sort of praying that God promises to answer is the praying that is according to his will. 
there's a warning in prayer um, from James, where James tells us that we have not because we ask not. And one translation says we ask amiss or we ask wrongly. How do we ask wrongly? He says, so that you may consume it upon your own lusts. And then James gives the um, description, you adulterous generation. So the picture here, I think, is this. When we approach God as one who who exists to satisfy our, our whims, to answer our request, to dispense things to us that we desire, but we don't really have a desire for God or for holiness or for his purposes, etc., we are, in effect, what James described as an adulterer. We're using, we're using God to give us things we want so we can go enjoy something else, someone else. So yeah. we're, like the, we're like the cheating spouse. We're the cheating spouse who asks, asks the husband, uh, can I have $100, and then leaves to go spend it with another man. Um, those sort of pray, that sort of praying doesn't, doesn't affect anything. But I think in between, no, we don't get to dictate. We, we must pray according to his word. If we pray anything according to, to his will, I think if we pray according to what he desires for us, then we know that he hears us. Um, if we pray in purity, if we pray with, with clean hearts, we know that God hears our prayers. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, I know God won't hear me. Um, to simply think that we can be living in unconfessed sin and having fruitful prayer time doesn't happen. But when we pray according to the promises, when we pray according to the things that we know God desires for us, then we know God is hearing and working in those things. These are things that we know God wants. And so we can pray confidently regarding those things. And we also have to pray with, I think, with a view of God that's big enough to believe He does respond this way. Mm-hmm. If we if we come to Him with doubt, or you know, as the Bible describes this in a double-minded sort of way, doubting that we're going to receive anything, then we don't. Um, we're not confident in the praying. But you know, a good example of of sovereignty and free will and prayer and, and a collision of those things would be in how we pray for people who don't know Jesus. We're actually praying if we have a right understanding both of God's will and what God has promised in his word, the power of the gospel, and um, a right understanding of his, not only his will, but his power and authority, we're actually praying that he will overcome their resistance. We're praying that he will change their heart. We're praying that God will do something that only God can do. When we're praying for the salvation of the lost, we're not simply praying that they will hear it. That's our responsibility. Um, We're not praying even for our ability to be convincing. We're praying for... For God to change their receiving of it, their response to it. We're asking God to do something sovereign. We're actually praying. If we rightly understand um, evangelistic praying, we're praying God to be sovereign. God, mm-hmm. overcome. Overcome whatever it is. Overcome the blindness that sin has given. Overcome the deception that the enemy has brought. Overcome their own resistance and hardness to it. God, you are big enough to be better than, stronger than their will. Yeah. So we're praying, actually, in that moment, I don't want them to have free will in that moment. I want them to have your will. I want you to change their mind when they hear the gospel this time. So that's why I would tell our folks sometimes when they have these questions about election, predestination, those things, our confidence in God's sovereignty is what really gives us confidence when we pray, because we're praying to a God who is strong enough to accomplish His will and good enough to accomplish the things that are good. And in His goodness, He does good things. And so God be sovereign as we pray. We're not bringing new information to him. We're not directing him. 
Um, he's not just sitting there waiting, and he certainly is not disposed to our will, but we pray, Lord willing, in the Spirit, in the sense that the Holy Spirit's guiding as we pray, that the Holy Spirit's leading us to how we should pray. Um, sometimes when we don't know how to pray, we even have confidence that he is interceding for us. The Son is interceding for us always. He's at the Father's side interceding, praying for us, that the, the Holy Spirit makes its utterance for us in, in words that can't be uttered. We don't know even how to pray, sometimes through our tears or through our struggle or through our frustrations. But if we know that if we pray according to his will, that he hears us. Yeah, another another aspect of prayer that I've that we've really um, I've enjoyed the last few months as we have changed our our corporate prayer time from being eight o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning before the services and everything gets started to now doing every Sunday night as we've started back our evening service. Uh, just being able to pray together as a church family about things that are important to us, people that are you know really dealing with illness or dealing with a, uh, a loss of family member or even praying for healthy babies, all kinds of those kind of things, but also big picture things of Calvary. I mean, I've just really enjoyed that. So speak to us about, about corporate prayer, why that's important for a church to be involved in that. For us at Calvary, I think this would be a good example of the need to always be reforming. I think it was a, a recognition, really kind of a painful recognition, that we are not dedicating enough corporate time uh, to prayer. You know, that man, there's a, there is a, I don't know, I guess it's an insidious sort of temptation in modern church, no matter what style or flavor or type of evangelical church you are, there's just this insidious tug on us subconsciously sometimes to cater what we do to the preference of religious consumers. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I'm not saying our people at Calvary or your people listening are, are consumers, but the mindset of saying, what will people like? Yeah. What will people... What will people come to? What will they sit through? What will they participate in? And even subconsciously, that guides so much of our decision making. And we've got this, we've got this one block of time on Sunday, typically Sunday morning, and we've got all these things we want to do, and songs that we want to sing, and messages that we want to get out, and all this sort of thing. And you know, we just come to recognition: people don't they don't sit well through lots of praying. They don't really like to pray. And I think as a maybe deferring to I don't know our our consumer habits, our our lessening commitment to um, to just biblical biblically necessary disciplines. We just started to move away from it, and prayers would become very quick. Maybe an opening prayer. Prayers would become transition points to get songs started, or choirs up and down off the stage, or prayers would be a setup to the message, or prayer would be a conclusion. They'd be perfunctory, you know, just, you know when we're going to pray, you know when we need to. They're just, they're almost like punctuation marks in, a, in an essay. Uh, instead of saying a fundamental activity we should be doing as God's people that we're really failing at in terms of uh, what a church should do in worship. If we're really looking at, does the Scripture speak to how a church should worship? Coming to the realization it absolutely does— you know, um, some in our stream would say would call that the regulative principle. Regulative in the sense the Scripture does regulate. God regulates in His Word how He's to be worshipped, and part of that's prayer. So anyway, I'm giving you a long answer to that, but we're just recognizing for us, man, we're just we're struggling with this. So we put in that eight o'clock, thinking we need some good corporate time of prayer, yeah, because we don't really have it. We want to pray for church things, mission things, things that are personal to our people, but things also all of our people together should be praying for collectively, right. And I'm I'm thrilled so far. We're we're new into this. It's only we're just at the end of October now, 
Um, and we've only been doing this since September, but I'm thrilled so far with what we're establishing on Sunday nights of just more corporate praying. And truthfully, and I don't say this, uh, you know, to be caustic or anything, if that's not something people want to do, I, that doesn't really concern me. This is something we need to do. This is something that's foundational to us as a church. We, we're going to be praying, um, and we're going to be praying more and more. Now, on Sunday mornings, I'm sure our folks have seen the shift. We're intentional about trying to be a little bit more like um, our, our Orthodox forefathers were in prayer. We're praying prayers like this Sunday. We're praying prayers of confession, prayers of adoration, prayers of thanks, prayers of petition. And we're trying to be very intentional week after week in incorporating most of these types of praying of prayers in our services. And then on Sunday nights, now we've really got chances, God's people, to say part of our worship, part of our part of our activity together as brothers and sisters, as a family, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for each other. And we're going to pray for our missionaries, and we're going to pray for our church, and we're going to pray for our community, and we're going to pray for our world and for our leaders, and, and we're going to do this more and more. This is just going to be foundational to who we are. Yeah, one thing I'd say to that, um, as the person who, you know, I'm normally, since we've been doing this for two months, I'm normally the person who leads that prayer time and tries to get people uh, in the congregation to lead a prayer for a certain uh, event or certain thing that we're praying for as a church. Um, one thing I would say with that, though, that I think we as a church need to work towards or are are training ourselves to do better is to to pray specifically for the thing that we've put before our church to pray for. I think sometimes we still feel like, you know, like because we've done prayer in other ways in services where things were just kind of generalized, that almost our praying sometimes, even if we can have four or five different people pray, they still want to try to be generalist, you know, instead of being very specific in prayers. Um, I remember a quote that um, Spurgeon says in his book, uh, Only a Prayer Meeting, he talks about uh, what could kill a prayer meeting. And one thing is someone praying so long and so that people get lost in it and they stop listening and they can't stay in with it because it's such a glowing, beautiful prayer that lasts 20 minutes, he says, and then they basically just did the introduction and now they're going to pray. You know, so I I think we have to be careful with that and do it well, do it. And that's just, I think it's, it's training. It's us doing it more and more to just stay specific in the prayers that we're trying to make so that so that it, it is something, I, I'm not saying that we want it to be fun or things that are entertaining, but something that we can all stay, you know, engaged with, maybe yeah. it's the better word for that. Well, I was just thinking as you're saying that, you you actually through this, you're choosing people and prayers that you pray, prayers that staff or elders or interns pray, um, church members pray, you're actually training people to pray, how to pray in those things, and you're realizing sometimes we still have some of those old habits. Yeah. And also, this is just such a challenge, and we were talking about this today in staff. So when um, we have a missionary speaker who shares with us names of people that they're trying to reach with the gospel right now in um, unengaged people group, here's a specific name. Well, we need to be praying for those people by name because we want to be praying in such a way on our Sunday night prayer gatherings or in our staff prayer gatherings, we need to be praying in such a way that if God answers, we would know it. Right. And so, you know, challenging our folks, let's not pray so broadly, like even if God responded that, we wouldn't even know if he did, because I'm not sure exactly what you're asking him, so how would we know if he did it? But really praying for those things specifically, because, man, that could that could collectively lift the faith of the whole congregation. I mean, how, how awesome would it be if we get a text message from a missionary who says, the folks, those names I gave you, so-and-so just um, gave their life to Christ and pray for them now and pray for their family. So really just really just doing that more and more and knowing that's just that's what God has called us to. Um, 
this should just be part and parcel. And I guess really when I talk about reforming back to that way, I'm not talking about being reformed. I'm not talking about any other doctrine. I'm talking about just getting back to really what our biblical roots should always have been. Um, and, and prayer has to be a huge part of that. Yeah, I think it also helps with just the community aspect of who we are. You know, when I know specific things that I can pray for someone that is mentioned on Sunday night, I'm going to know that person better. And then that means that we're going to have more of a relationship just in maybe, and I think it just builds the the compelling community that we really want at Calvary, that we see ourselves as as a family that loves one another and knows specifically about each other. And I think that'll go a long way just in, even in helping our fellowship with one another. Yeah, for sure. A young couple that's about to get married and we're praying for them, that, that only builds relationships and community. And at the very least, it might send some people that are in that prayer gathering that night um, out Sunday morning, next time they see them, seek them out. I need yeah. to meet them. I need to, I need to go encourage them, or uh, somebody going through a job change, or just knowing that we really are, we are really are lifting each other up. We're really praying for each other. We're really interceding for each other. But also just, you know, just praying as a church. You know, I think of those, some of those Sunday morning prayer times. We, we need to spend a portion of our time gathered, really doing that. We need. I, I feel like we're negligent, or we've been negligent. And just simply doing the things that I don't know, previous generations probably just took for granted as just normal. We're gonna we're gonna praise you today, God. We're gonna speak words of prayer. Um, your thoughts on this, Charles? I know we've had some discussions. Some of those prayers, some of our staff and elders and other people praying have have written out their prayers. Uh, what do you think about that? When some of those collective corporate prayer times, particularly on Sunday morning, when folks are writing them out. Well, I think. I think it can be, I think it's up to the individual in some ways. Some people are, are uh, maybe more comfortable in front of a mic, and so it gives them a little bit of security if they think about it beforehand. I, I don't think it's anything to, to pray or to have written out what you want to pray. I mean, how many prayers are in the Bible that we read uh, and, and can use those? I mean, that's one of the ways that in my devotion time I have in, gone back and used the Psalms before as, as prayer guides. And, and so to write down those thoughts of prayer, I mean, that especially in a corporate setting, a setting where you want to be succinct and you want people to be able to engage with what you're saying, you know, it just, I think it can help in some ways. I don't think you have to do it, but I think it definitely uh, can be a benefit to, to people to really have your thoughts together so to speak, in a way, and have thought about it. I mean, uh, it, we do. We don't expect you to just jump up there and preach on Sunday morning and and fly by the seat of your pants because you haven't even yeah. thought about it all week. Well, I know I'm going to preach on Sunday. I guess I'll just get up there and do it. That's a similar, actually, um, analogy I gave to somebody who mentioned it to me. I said, you know, I, I do. I write out most of my sermon. Yeah. You know, I'm writing these things out. I've. It's not just in that moment that I'm asking. I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit's going to guide me and the scriptures are going to come alive to me. I'm. You know, I've thought this thing through. I've written it out. Uh, could I not do the same thing with a prayer? And I tell you, I read a prayer Sunday morning from Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. And as I was as I was choosing the one that I was going to read, I tell you, it was really convicting to me, one, to read it, but to think about, as you said, the amount of thought that went into that. And I thought, I'm not saying that we should write them all the time necessarily, but I do think for anybody who never has, it can be a very helpful exercise in just forcing you to really think through and and pray in a, in a meaningful way and to really consider the the words and thoughts and and not rush. You know, I looked at the words of that prayer and I thought this not only was it beautifully written and it was moving to read and hear, but the concepts were so powerful. I thought 
How infrequently do we pray this way with this level of intentionality and thoughtfulness and scripture? And you know, we, we fly through and, and if we're not careful, we'll we'll pray very cliched things, right. repetitive things. And um, I, I like the I like the challenge. Um, so again, it's not it's not always. I don't want to just simply uh, borrow someone else's prayer. But if someone really wants to put their thoughts to something and put it down and, and write this out and think of this in a powerful way and then repeat it, then so be it. And I don't have a problem with prayers are repeated either. I mean, I think Jesus gave a parable about that, about <laughs> a woman coming to the judge and coming often and often and often. I think uh, the challenge there to us was in prayer. So if it was meaningful to you as you wrote it and you want to express it again, I, I think it can be a very powerful thing. Yeah, that's true. All right, anything else before we uh, wrap up this edition? I just want to say there are some there are some good resources on prayer too. I think that's that's a challenge sometimes. People have well, how do I get started? There's some good resources on on prayer in our resource center. Um, if you'd like to to get some thoughts on that, just send us an email. We'd love to send you some things that I think are, are beneficial, helpful to you. Um, so a good introduction, spiritual disciplines. Donald Whitney is a, just a great book on just getting started. And it, you know he didn't intend to give it a compelling title. And no one likes the idea of disciplines. Like, no, not even more relaxing freedom. No, <laughs> the things that make a difference, um, the spiritual actions that will make a difference in your life are those spiritual disciplines. And there's a good challenge in there on prayer. And we're going to be talking about more of that um, in some days to come, too, in some of our collective teaching on on prayer. And, of course, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to have an opportunity to do that, too. And how do we how do we approach God in prayer? Yeah, the Lord's Prayer will be be right there waiting be huge, on us. yeah. Teach us how to pray. Yeah. Um, if the disciples needed someone to teach them how to pray, though they were with Jesus every day, surely we do also. Yep. All right, so we will uh, see you next time. Remember, we are for God, for Dothan, for the world. <laughs>